are five weeks away from Easter. Um, I don't know if you even have comprehended that yet. Like, have you gotten the Easter baskets? Have you dyed the Easter eggs? Is anybody even thinking about Easter? No, no one. Five weeks, people. You've got five weeks. Um, And what we're doing to prepare for Easter here at Clarksburg Church is we are kind of looking at the second half of the book of Luke, um, which actually describes Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the location where he is going to um, die. He's going to die on a cross and be resurrected. And, uh, And that is really what we celebrate when we celebrate Easter. And so we're kind of looking at the different conversations that Jesus had on his journey, the conversations he had with his disciples, the conversations he had with the people he runs into. Um, And he's sort of having all of these conversations in order to prepare his followers and all of the people that he meets with what is going to happen when he reaches Jerusalem, to prepare them for his death and resurrection, to prepare them to be sent out into the world on the mission of God. Now, some of these conversations Jesus has, they are super encouraging and they're exciting. And some of these conversations that Jesus has are jarring and challenging and like not fun at all. And some of them are really gentle and and some of them are super harsh, but all of them proclaim the kingdom of God and invite the listeners to not only embrace this kingdom, but to devote their lives to advancing it. Now, in some Bibles, the words that Jesus speaks are denoted in red letters. And so that's why we've called this series Red Letters. Those red letters remind us that the teacher is is speaking. And so we, as we journey on this series, want to remember that these words that are spoken are, are from our Lord and our Savior. They are the red letters. Now, before I came to Clarksburg Church, I used to work um, with a lot of high school and middle school students, and uh, every year, we'd take a couple different trips. We'd take a trip in the winter, we'd do winter camp, and and then we'd also take a trip in the summer where we'd do sort of a work camp. Um, And these were always amazingly fun trips, and there was like so much ministry that happened compact into these few short days, and kids just felt like their lives were transformed, and they had these opportunities to meet with Jesus, and it was just an incredible, incredible, sweet, sweet journey that we'd go on during these days. But typically at the beginning of the trip, I would try to help prepare them for the opportunities that were in front of them. And I didn't want them to miss out on like these very important opportunities that were going to be happening. And so in order to help them realize the opportunity that was in front of them, um, I would typically tell them a story. And it was typically about me. Um, And the story would change a little bit here and there, but it, it would go something like this. When I was in college, I took a trip with my brother. We went to Europe, and we traveled, backpacked through Europe for four and a half weeks or so. And we went to all sorts of different countries. We were in England, and we were in Italy, and we were in Spain. We went to France for a little bit, we went to the Netherlands, and then like, I took like, a day trip into Germany, which my brother thought that he lost me forever on that trip. But I fell asleep on the train and wound up somewhere else that I was not supposed to be in. But I found my way back. It was fine. It took me a whole extra night. But I found my way back. 
Um, and so we went on this trip, and it was great. But it was on this trip that, at, you know what, like, we'd find internet cafes and we'd like be like, yes, let's go, check email and all that stuff. So on this one occasion, I was checking my email at one of the internet cafes and uh, I looked at my email and I had this email that let me know that I had won this grant. Now I hadn't even thought about this grant. My professors earlier that year had put me up for applying for this grant. I hadn't even thought that I had a shot in like one in a million to get this grant. And yet I did. It was the International Imagination Grant. And it was uh, to do some special art projects over the summer and do some classes and different things like that. And it was super, super exciting. But I never, ever thought that I could have gotten this grant. Um, so in the email, they were like, hey, there's this paperwork that you need to fill out, and you need to do this, and you need to reply with these things. And I didn't have any of those things, so I quickly sent an email. I said, hey, listen, I'm in London right now, and I just, I don't have those paperwork. Can we extend the deadline? Would that be okay that when I get back home, then I can give you the paperwork that's needed? Can I have an extension? And I sort of eagerly waited a reply, and as we're walking through the city, I just keep looking for internet cafes. And uh, then we checked the, the email again, and sure enough, I got an email back from them. Not only did this email grant me an extension with the paperwork, but they also said, hey, that's so fun that you're in England. All of the International Imagination Grant award winners that are in England are actually traveling together next week to do a meet and greet with the queen. Would you like to be a part of that? And I was like, uh, excuse me? Like, and they explained, it's two minutes. Like, you show up, you have a little training on what you're supposed to do, you walk through the room, it's two minutes, you shake hands, you take pictures, you go into the next room where she is not, and then you have tea, and, um, and that's sort of what you do. And it was super, I was just like, you have got to be kidding me, but the first thing I thought of was, what am I going to wear? Like, what do you wear to meet the queen, right? Like, how, what am I supposed to do? So I was super, super excited, went shopping, tried to figure out all of the things. We had to rearrange some of our travel plans to make sure that our stay in England was a little bit longer. Um, but it's the queen, so like, yeah, you're going to do that. Um, and so I'm looking for something remotely appropriate to fit the occasion. And the night before, I steamed. I, we were staying at a hostel, so I asked them, like, do you have, like, an iron or whatever for this thing? And they were, like, scrounged around, and they found it. And, like, in this hostel we were staying in, you do six to a room. So me and my brother took two of the beds, but then random people sleep in the other beds. And then you have, like, a locker. So I'm, like, trying to hang my dress in the locker so that it doesn't get all wrinkled, but like that's all I have. So I'm doing this, and then I set my alarm. There was really specific, like you had to be there at um, 7 a.m. and to do the training meeting and before you like meet the queen or whatever. And they gave me contact information and all that stuff. So um, I get in bed. I go to bed early because I'm like I want to be well rested, but I know I'm not going to sleep at all. And I plug my phone in and I set my alarm, and I'm just lying awake and I can't sleep because I keep practicing like, how do you do? How do you do? Right? Like I can't sleep at all. I'm so excited. Well, at two in the morning, the other roommates—I'm still awake. The other roommates come into the room, and they're like, they had been having some fun. And they are like bounding around the room, stumbling about, and they finally like are not, they're knocking things over, and finally one of them crawls into the bed above. And I just keep thinking, well, when I wake up at 6 a.m., 
I, I'll be sure to make just as much noise as you have made at two, right? And so uh, revenge planning and all of that sort of thing. Okay, so finally I fall asleep. And I wake up that morning, and the sun is streaming through the window. And it is shining down on me. And I realize, why is the sun up at 6 a.m.? What is happening? So I scramble to find my phone to figure out what time it was. The phone had been unplugged in the jar hustle and bustle of the people coming in. They had knocked the plug out of the wall, and the phone had died, and I didn't know what time it was. <laughs> and so I quick scramble to plug the phone back in, and as it's charging, I'm like throwing on all of my clothes and everything like that, and brushing my teeth, trying to save time. Like, I know I'm going to have to rush. I know I'm going to have to rush. Finally, the phone comes on, and I discover it is 7.13, and there are a few texts from the contact person. The last one says, my apologies, we had to begin without you. Enjoy the rest of your trip. And I missed it. Now, it's at this point in telling the story to the students that I would tell them what I'm going to tell you now. This story never happened. Not in this way. Most of the story was completely made up. But there is truth in this story. Every day, you and I have an invitation to meet with someone who is far greater and more powerful and more amazing than the Queen of England. And many days, you and I completely miss our opportunity. And we do it so often that there's no longer this jaw-dropping response or this, ah, it's just like, eh, whatever, it's not a big deal. And then we wonder why we're so hungry, why we're so dissatisfied, why we feel like there's a longing in us that we can't seem to fill with anything. And it's really because we haven't feasted with the only one that fills us. Now, this is actually what Jesus is trying to get at in Luke chapter 14. He's at this big party. He's at this party that is being hosted by this very important Pharisee, uh, who was this religious Jewish leader of the time. Now, the fact that Jesus is at a feast or a banquet or a party, that's not a really big deal, because actually, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus is always at a feast or a banquet or a party. He loved parties. He loved to be there with all of the people. But in the middle of this banquet, something strange happens that doesn't happen at the other banquets. There was this man, we're told that there was this man, who likely was a Pharisee. And the man stands up in the middle of the banquet and he says, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not sure what this guy was thinking. Like, maybe the reason he stood up was because he, he like, wanted to make a toast. Blessed is the man who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. Maybe he, he thought that he, what he was saying was this really profound statement. Blessed is the man who eats at the feast of the kingdom of God. But what he's basically saying is, the person who gets to meet with God and feast with him in his kingdom, that person is blessed, that person is filled, that person is, that's like a really good thing to be at the feast with God. Now, if Jesus had been anything more like me, and what I mean by that is more sinful and cynical, 
um, Jesus might have responded the same way I would have responded, which would have been this. Like, it would have been a slow clap. It would have been like, are you kidding? There is nothing brilliant about that statement. Of course, of course the person that is at the feast of God is blessed. Of course that's true. There's nothing amazing about saying that. Feasting with the God of the universe, the one who has created you, who has knit you together in your mother's womb, who is the life force of our entire being, who has the power to calm the seas and quake the storm. If he's extended an invitation to you, then you best say yes. See, oftentimes in scripture, meeting with God is described as this feast. It's this place where you dine in style, where you fill the fuel of your spirit where you pour out your longings and you listen to the heart of God and you allow God to guide and direct you. And afterwards, you're so filled to the brim that there's, there's nothing like it. So yes, you're blessed. But Jesus doesn't slow clap. Instead, Jesus actually tells him a story. Jesus tells him a parable, which may be Jesus's like holy way of slow clapping. Don't totally know. But this is what Jesus says. He replies, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, now everything is ready. Now we've talked about before about when we read scripture, our first, our gut response is like to put ourselves in there. So we think, oh, I'm the man who's having the party. You're not the man having the party. We'll get to who you are later. The man having the party is actually God. God is having this great feast, this, this great banquet. And, and God is the one. And the party actually symbolifies, symbolizes, symbolizes, thank you, the party actually symbolizes um, sort of two things. There's, there's this great end-time feast, this party that will happen in heaven, that we'll experience in the afterlife when Jesus brings heaven and earth together, when all of earth is recreated like it once was, where there's no more sickness and there's no more pain and there's no more suffering and there's no more injustice because God has established God's reign in all of its fullness. It's the restoration of heaven and earth and that is going to be a huge party so God is saying hey I I'm the man and I'm gonna throw a huge party and now we've got to invite the people now the party is in the afterlife the party is at the end of time but there's also like these mini pregame parties that happen all the time and 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 God's like I want you to experience them on earth also that there's not just this party in the future, there's also this party that can be experienced in the here and the now. God's not just up there waiting for you to die so you can come to the party. What Jesus did when he came to earth was he brought the party to earth. And so we have an opportunity to experience these like mini feasts here on earth where we get to experience the presence of God in the everyday, where we get to sit in the presence of the most high God and experience love and mercy, and compassion, and justice in the presence of God. And we have an opportunity to be like the party throwers who are God's party ambassadors. And we get to go into the whole world and be like, hey, let's throw a mini party here. That's what vulnerable children is all about. Let's throw a mini party here. That's what so many of the things are about, is we want people to experience the feast 
of God, the presence of the Most High God. And we get to do that when we're renewed and we're refueled daily. We sit and we listen to him and we learn about him and we participate in his kingdom. So God, this master of this parable, and the parties that he's talking about are both the heavenly party at the end, but also the pregame parties that we get to experience right now. And then Jesus continues. He says, but, like, uh, but they all alike began to make excuses. All the people who had been invited, they make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am on my way to try them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. No explanation needed. Guys, that was funny. Never mind. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. So the servants come back and they say, hey, nobody's coming to this party. Everybody has an excuse. And the master becomes angry. Now, when Jesus uh, says this part of the parable, chances are the original listeners, um, and they hear the excuses, I bought some land, I bought some oxen, I just got married. Um, to the original hearers, these are good excuses. They're like, yeah, that's legitimate. That's totally, that would have been honored in their society. These were important economic and social things that they had to take care of. But the fact that the owner became angry clues us into something more. It clues us in that the one who is throwing the party doesn't see their social responsibilities or reasons as valid. They don't hold water when pitted against this really good party. It's as if the master believes that this party isn't just like, it's supposed to not just take priority over like poorly laid plans. It's supposed to take priority over the best possible agendas. The attendance to this feast is vital. It's above and beyond anything. This is a don't miss opportunity, but all of the people that had been invited just didn't get it. So, so far in Jesus' parable, he's pretty much agreeing with this man's statement that had said, blessed is the one who eats at this feast. And Jesus is saying, yes, it's the number one priority above everything else. And so in this parable so far, there's really no surprises. But then something surprises the listener. The master does something totally shocking. Jesus says that he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of town and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but, but there's still room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be filled. I tell you, no one of those who were originally invited will taste of my banquet. And so the master sends his servant out and he invites the backup guests. Now, the thing that is shocking is not that there are backup guests. They had backup guests back then, just like we do. And we don't admit that we have backup guests, but you know you invite the first tier to the wedding first, and then you, like, a week later, start inviting the second tier. This, this is true, right? Okay, thank you. Okay, so the shock is not the backup guests. The shock is who the backup guests are. The shock is that they are the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind and the ones that are scattered on the roadsides, that these are the people that the master invites to this amazing banquet. 
They were people from completely different social circle. And Jesus in this is making it clear that all people are invited to the table regardless of their background, their past, their status in society, or any, ca- uh, any categories that culture divides people in. He creates a way for everyone to come through his death and his resurrection. He invites everyone. And so the poor and the lame and the blind and the marginalized, they respond completely differently than the first sets of guests. They actually come. They don't give excuses. They actually show up to this banquet. And I, and I just imagine that as they're getting this invitation, this is the highlight of the year. They are delighted to be invited to this feast. They're delighted and ecstatic about being included in this opportunity. How could they miss it? There's no place that they'd rather be. See, with the second half of the parable, with the second round of invites, Jesus sort of turns the table on this guy. He sort of says, yes, blessed is the one who comes to the feast. But through the rest of the parable, Jesus is asking this guy in this indirect way. He's saying, but will you be there? Will you be at the feast? Do you consider yourself one of the people who had something more important to do? Or do you consider yourself one of the poor and the blind, and the lame, or the marginalized. And just like that, the Pharisee, and those of us who are followers of Christ, we would also agree, yes, blessed is the one who sits at the feast. We all agree on that. But sometimes, Like the people in the beginning of the parable, we don't choose to feast at the feast. We don't choose to sit and listen and learn from our Heavenly Father. We don't choose to give our lives to the kingdom. There's always something that seems to come up. We miss the invitation by the power of the enemy working against us. We get distracted. Our alarm gets unplugged. There are emergencies that pop up. We're even blind to even realize how vital and life-giving this meeting with our Heavenly Father is. Or we miss the invitation by our own indifference to meet with Him. We're like, well, I have something better to do. I have this other appointment. I have this hobby or this occupation that I just fill my calendar with. I'm just too busy. And what this parable is pointing out, that it's really only those who understand themselves as poor and lame and cripple and blind that actually accept the invitation to the feast. They accept it because they know this is the best thing that will ever happen to them. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. And if we continue to see ourselves, or if we see ourselves as anything other than poor, or crippled, or blind, or lame, we will always come up with a better opportunity, or a better excuse. Now, when I'm saying that, I'm not saying that if you are rich or able-bodied or you can see that you should squander your wealth and break your legs and poke out your eyes so that you can go to the feast. That's not what I mean. Instead, what I'm saying is that if you think that you're rich spiritually, if you think that you have enough resources 
even physically or tangibly, to get you where you want to go, to get you everything that you need, to take care of yourself, then you will always stay away from the kingdom feast because you'll always try to depend on your own resources to get yourself fulfilled. And if you think that you're able-bodied, if you think that you in your own power and your own strength can get yourself to where you need to go, to make the improvements, to quit smoking, to fix that relationship, whatever the thing is, if you think you can do it in your own strength and your own power, you will always stay away from the kingdom feast because you will depend on your own ability to get yourself fulfilled. And if you think you have sight, if you think that you have wisdom, that you can see the world clearly, that you can see your own heart clearly, you will always stay away from the kingdom feast because you will always depend on your own wisdom and knowledge to get yourself filled. And so we'll stay busy and we'll seek our own wealth and our own relationships and our own wisdom. And we'll think that it will bring us life and fulfillment. But it never does. It's only God who fulfills. It is only by feasting with him that we will be filled. But when we acknowledge that we are poor, when you acknowledge that you're poor, that you lack what you need, that you never have enough in your own strength to give or to pay, when you acknowledge that you are lame, that you have no ability to get where it is that you need to go in your own power and your own strength, when you acknowledge that you are one of the blind, that you can't even see the world or yourself or your relationships correctly, that you don't know where you're going or how to get there, it's then that you're freed to accept the invitation to this amazing feast both daily and for all of eternity. It's then that we're able to recognize that we can be filled in no other way than by feasting with our God. Now when Jesus responds to this man in this parable, he sort of is asking him a question, like I said before. He's asking him, are you going to turn down this invitation with excuses? Or are you going to accept the fact that you are blind, lame, poor, so that you can embrace this invitation to the feast? Now, in many ways, 2,000 years later, you're really being asked the same question. I'm being asked the same question. Do I desire to feast with the only one that fills? And am I willing to admit my poverty, my lameness, my blindness in order to do it? And the question is given to you too. Do you desire to feast with the only one that fills? And are you willing to admit your poverty and your lameness and your blindness in order to do so? Now this morning, I want to give you a chance to respond to this question in a, in a particular way, with a particular posture. Now, when we communicate with God, it doesn't actually require any specific physical position. But sometimes postures give an expression of, our attitude, of the attitudes of our hearts. And so I'm going to invite you to participate in a posture prayer this morning. And... Um, 
So what I'm going to ask you to do is as we pray, or before we pray, I'm going to ask you to stand. And you can stand there with just your hands holding each other, and that's totally fine. But if for you, you feel led to respond in a particular way with a particular posture, I'm going to invite you to take one of these postures. And if none of them fit, that's okay. You can just stand there and keep your hands folded, and and that is totally fine. But if you this morning recognize that you are poor, that you're not enough, that you don't have enough to give or to pay, both economically or spiritually, in order to make the things happen that you know need to happen, I'm going to invite you to just open your hands as a way for, to communicate with God and express the attitude of your heart that says, God, I'm poor and I need you. And if you are in a position this morning where you feel like, no, I'm, I'm lame. <laughs> I can't get myself to where I want to be. I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to become a different person, but I recognize that this body is not going to get me there. And so I have no ability to do it within myself. I'm going to ask you to just sit as we pray. And if you find yourself in relating to blindness, that you can't even see where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do or how even to get there, I'm going to invite you to put your hands on your head sort of near your eyes as a way of communicating, I'm, I'm blind, I can't see. And then we're going to pray together and, and cry out to our Father recognizing that, that we are poor, we are lame, we are blind and we desperately need to be at that feast we desperately want to be filled but this is who we are and so we accept the invitation so will you stand with me and take whatever posture is appropriate for you as we pray Father God, we are here in this place admitting our hearts, admitting that we are poor, that we are lame, that we are blind. And in doing so, we also admit that you have done everything for us, that you are the one who is rich that you are the one who gives sight. You are the one who heals the lame and the cripple. And we come to you admitting our weakness, knowing that you are the one who heals and restores. That you are the one who looks at our poverty and our lameness and our blindness and doesn't say, hey, you're out, you can't come. You're the one who says, oh, that's who you are, then please come feast at the table. We are here because we need you. We can't do this in our own strength. And there are so many ways that we make excuses for coming to you to fill us. And so here in this place we admit we need you. And we accept the invitation to come. So Father God, would you fill us 
would you draw us in? Would you give us everything that we need to come and sit at your feast? We thank you that it is by Jesus that this invitation has come.